Oregon's one mission to bring Major League Baseball to Oregon. Powered by the Portland Gear Store and Guardian Games, this is the Diamonds and Roses podcast. And without further ado, your hosts, Ben and David. I'm Dave. I'm Ben. I'm Rob. And welcome Welcome to to the Diamonds and Roses podcast. Welcome back for part two with Rob Nelson. Dave? Uh, I'm excited to be here. Um, Just the the adventures of Rob Nelson and uh, kind of the uh, baseball purist, baseball traveler, baseball aficionado, uh, baseball emissary. Curveball hanger? Yeah. (laughs) Hanger of curveballs, lover of life. Lover of life, hangers of curveball. Yeah, and I didn't didn't mention this, but when he was talking about how the curveball, like, rainbowed, you ever... uh, we watched that movie Rookie of the Year with a kid. Yeah, and he just gets the, his arms like throwing like fastballs, and then he 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 fun, somehow he falls back, lands on his shoulder, and then his arms back to normal, and he can't throw the ball to thing. So he just his mom's just like just loft it, just loft he go he it. goes Ephus, he <laughs> yeah. goes Ephus on that throw. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, so I, that's what it got me to thinking. Um, so we're we're back here with uh, great. Mr. Rob Nelson, uh, Rob, welcome back. Pleasure to be back. Um, let's. We, we last episode we got up to your time in Africa, and that you had received a word in uh, from a sporting news clipping about the Mavericks. You started hitting on this a little bit about you coming here to Oregon. That's correct. <laughs> How Oregon. I pronounced it. At now the I know. Of, right. The yeah. Willamette River. river the, the Willamette. Yeah. My, my dad. My, I heard uh, they say Willamette. You say Willamette. Damn it. It all sounds the same. That's funny. <laughs> so, uh, but you you get this sporting news clipping um, in the mail, uh, and you know you have this new drive. Like you said, you're going to come back. To Oregon, win some games, and then hopefully get signed by uh, you know a professional team, either playing minor league ball or playing in the you know playing professionally on the upper level in Major League Baseball. Um, so you fly back here to Oregon, you you go to tryouts. W- were you nervous at all when you when you walked in to go try out for the team? You know, it's funny. I wasn't nervous. We had just won the national championship in South Africa in April of uh, 1975. And uh, my confidence level was at an all-time high. And uh, Portland just made sense. So I did a month's worth of substitute teaching to, hmm. to raise enough bucks to get here. Gotcha. Flew into Portland. Every time I, I fly into the airport, I think about... Taking a bus to downtown. I stayed at the Congress Hotel, no longer there. I think it might have been on Broadway. And then uh, got up to Civic Stadium. I couldn't believe the ballpark. I felt like I was in a movie. And uh, I met Ralph Coleman, who was organizing the pitchers for the tryouts. And uh, they gave me a shot. I had my full uniform on. A lot of guys were in cutoffs and stuff. And I think Coley... <laughs> Coley, yeah, exactly. Coley just expected... Uh, he liked the idea that I looked like a ball player. Mm-hmm. And he knew that I'd come a very long way. So I, it was kind of like I went to the top of the line. They yeah, had win. that going for it. I didn't wait sure. much more than an sure. hour. And I, I think I struck out five guys in three innings. And the Oregon Journal, Ken Wheeler, wrote an article the next day and said that looks like the lefty from Africa is going to make it. And when people talked about the lefty from Africa, I think they thought that that, that I was pitching barefoot and that I, you know, <laughs> yeah. that, that Tarzan. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, lefty, they had no lefty idea. Tarzan. You know, a lefty from Africa by way of Brooklyn and Long Island and, you know, upstate New York. But then, you know, three days later, I, I got hit badly and... Uh, and the rest is history. But when you asked me if I was nervous, I was excited. Mm-hmm. I thought I really had the goods. We're talking a lot of years later, decades later, that I, that I think about it now and say, man, how did I have the chutzpah to think that I could come do this? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I got some good hitters out when I was pitching in the Ivy League at Cornell, but I wasn't that good. And, and it's okay. It's interesting because I didn't make the team... I started the Little Maverick Baseball School. I asked yeah. Bing Russell. I had written this thing in college, and I said, you know, nobody's ever done a baseball day camp using the guys who play at night, mm-hmm. coaching kids the next day. It's usually retired players. Yeah, you're way ahead, yeah. way ahead well, of the curve. Yeah. Well, and Bing said, I love the idea. 
And you know, one of the, the my friendships in my life because of that baseball school, Todd Field was a little math. Mm-hmm. The and, bat boy, and yep. film producer, yeah. And he got hooked on the idea of the Mavericks. He just loved the coaches. He loved the ambiance. And uh, he eventually tried out to be a bat boy. He, he he did a really nice thing when we when the documentary came out, The Battered Bastards of Baseball. I, I was in Park City. I was in Utah okay. sitting next to, of all people, Kurt Russell. And uh, we're watching the film together. And, and Todd is talking about being a tryout member as well but he's not yeah. trying out for the team he's trying not to be a bad right player. yeah and he said to me rob how do i get this job and he remembered it and i did not but he said rob told me just do everything you can to make it impossible for him not to hire you yeah do everything so that's how Todd got the job and he took it to heart too you could see like in the documentary todd talking about that and just how emotional like he was, he's like, okay, he's like, you're giving him this advice, and he's like, I'm just gonna like run my pants off and burn yeah. like the soles of my shoes. It. When Ben waved it. him over and and said to him, I wish I had ten kids like you. You got the job. He was just, it was like he had made the team, and he yeah. did. He did make the team. He had more of an impact on that team than than I did. I mean, as a relief pitcher, middle innings guy. I won one game in three years with the Portland Mavericks. Mm-hmm. The thing, I'm happy about it for the friendships that I made there, but guys like Todd Field, the, he realized as a 14-year-old that what you want to do in life is what you love to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Two things Todd wanted to do, play trombone or become an actor. And uh, it's funny, he did a film with Ashley Judd called Ruby in Paradise, okay. where he got to play the trombone and he was an actor. And mm-hmm. they were both kids at the time, you know, in their uh, early 20s. Yeah. But so he had a great acting career. Then he went on the other side of the camera. You know, Oscar-nominated yeah, Best, yep, best yep. Picture within the Bedroom. A lot of Oscars out there for little children with Kurt Wins- uh, with uh, Kate Winslet. Uh, just a really cool guy. I mean, yep. he's in Sydney now. I texted him yesterday. He's doing filming mm-hmm. a couple of commercials. And I mm-hmm. said, make sure you go to the Lord Nelson Brewery Pub. I know the innkeeper. <laughs> and he said, I'll do that. That'll be great. Nice. You know, so... It's all because of baseball, and it's always be, all because I just thought I could do things that had never been done before. Yeah. And you, it's a cliche. You read about it all the time. You know, Pete Rose in the batting cage, hitting lefty, hitting lefty, hitting right-handed, and so forth. You know, so I got lucky in my own small way. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that, I mean, we'll talk about this later, but the fact that Big League Chew is part of an exhibit in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Yeah, very and cool. And the reason Big League Chew came up is because I didn't play very much for the Mavericks. I spent a lot of time in the bullpen just ruminating, talking yeah. ideas, and playing word games and doing The imagination the, wheels are turning. Well, yeah. Exactly sure, right. Sure. You know, and then, you know, as a lefty, I kind of look at the world differently. differently. Yeah. And that thing just came up, and it was, you know, so many people have great ideas that they just don't get launched. And one of the reasons I think I have... I have a lot of people who, who like the story is because they know that there is that that authenticity about it, that it was organic. It was yeah. like, yeah. you know, I don't like these guys chewing red, man. I never did it except the first time, which lasted about 90 seconds. It never made sense to me. Yeah. So let's come up with a fun alternative. And it's like in the movies where somebody says, I've got a barn, I've got a band, let's throw a party kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. Let's, throw, let's have a show. That, that's what it was like. I mean, the summer of 77 came up with the idea. Jim Bouton said I could sell it. You know, two and a half years later, it's in every 7-Eleven in America. Yeah. But going back to that whole, the whole Portland Maverick thing that Bing Russell wanted... You know, the old movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, everybody is drawn to one location. That's what the Mavericks are like. Yeah. The documentary, The Battered Bastards of Baseball, you know, produced and written by Bing's grandsons, uh, the Way Brothers, they did a remarkable job painting a picture Mm -hmm. of truth. Because they had called me early on. They said, we're thinking of doing a documentary. And I said, I've seen four or five scripts to do the Portland Mavericks story. And none of them worked because they made stuff up. I said, if you stick to the truth and just talk to the guys, there's not a guy who's going to say no. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to share the story because it meant so much to them, and they and they did very well. Everybody yeah. shared their story. I remember watching that for the first time, and I finished it because 
Dave and I had talked previously because we this were, last summer. Yeah. yeah, we were working on okay. Well, what are we going to do for episodes for the podcast? And as you know, got into and I saw that they had the Mavericks, and I was like, okay, we got to do an episode on the Mavericks. But I didn't really know much at the time, and then I came across the Battered Bastards of Baseball, and so I I saw it, and I'm like almost in tears at the end just because. I, as I called Dave up and I'm like, you need to watch this. I was like, you need to watch this and you're going to take copious amounts of notes. It was, a, it was a momentum point for what we're doing that, yeah. that film and, and you, the characters, you. Emotionally, I'm going on this involved. roller coaster throughout yeah. this whole Great entire thing. It was, it, was, it was wonderful. And um, I, I want to jump into I want to jump into the little Maz because um, you, you, you were talking about this. And what I was reading is is that you, you ran the Little Mavs during the day, but it was the guys from the team participated. They were the coaches. They were the coaches. And they then, worked for me. And then they went back, and then they played later that night. At night. Well, can, if, if you could take anything from what you did during that time with those children, fundamentally, what would you say to the kids playing now? Like from that time to this time, that still is the same thing going from there. It's like my baseball camp with the town of Southampton on the east end of Long Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are very few baseball day camps that do what I do. We don't have T-shirts. We don't have trophies. I don't have any long speeches. I teach six or eight fundamental things. And most importantly, it's let's go play. Yeah. And you play ball. You don't work ball. And just learn to love the game. Learn a handful of things. Make an L because you love to throw. Line up your knuckles. Just these simple things. When I and now I've done I've done the Southampton camp since '86, mm-hmm. so it's like 33 years later. I run into kids now who are in their 40s. They're not kids anymore. I say, Hey, Coach Rob, I was in your camp, you know, 1989. I said, What do you remember? And they'll say things like, You taught us the home run trot. You know <laughs> the fun stuff. You know yeah. how to how yeah. to be humble but look cool when you hit a home run, and 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 they remember stuff like five strikes and you're out and foul balls don't count and you got to make that play mm-hmm. and just all the dopey banter that I have. Every kid who coaches in my camp now was a kid in my camp. They're uh-huh. all high school and college oh, kids, cool. so they laugh at all my material, even though it's tired stuff and it's <laughs> this kind of like dad jokes come to you know the baseball field. Yeah, but the thing that I really, I think I get this from my brothers and from my mom and my dad that I think a coach has to understand more than anything that we are teachers. And that coaches, the the thing I don't like about a lot of coaching today is that a lot of coaches really want to win. And they don't understand that the kids really want to play. And there are instances where kids just don't get enough playing time because the coach is the bottom of the ninth or the fourth quarter of of basketball or the fifth set of volleyball. They don't put kids in because they don't want to lose. And I think that's silly. I think that what you want to teach, unless you're a professional player and winning is why you're playing, I mean, even up to the collegiate ranks, I think that... The, the beauty of the game is the game itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Give people the opportunity to be a part of that. Yeah. I was talking with friends recently. They said, you know, if you got the, the coaching job at Cornell, what would you do? I'd say, I'd let the guys hit with wood bats. I, I would treat it like it was a minor league team. I, I would respect the guys. Mm-hmm. I, I would give guys the opportunity to give me input on the lineups and so forth. But most importantly is when I go back to the reunions... We remember the fun that we had. Now. Yeah, you know, and the and the and the good times. I I've got a good friend in Austin, Texas. I completely forgot that Drew Rogers quit the varsity basketball team when we were seniors because he was getting two minutes a game. Wasn't you know, fun. You don't yeah. do that. Yeah. You don't do that. You know, and this guy became a pilot with United. And just an enormously classy guy mm-hmm. and a great guy. And I remember we were in Austin, Texas, this maybe six months ago. I said, "Man, I am really sorry." I should have spoken up, but I'm 17, 18 years old. I'm throwing in a, a boatload of points, and I'm kind of focused on my own life. Now that I'm an alleged adult, I want coaches to see the bigger picture. Yeah, to remember that that every kid is is somebody's son. Mm-hmm. I was talking recently with a friend of mine about the the Oregon game where they called timeout when the kicker. The, the, just before he kicked, they oh, called the Washington, the game. Washington yeah. game. You know, and they did it three times. Ice and the kicker, and, yeah. and my my friend, Dr. Jerry Wrench, here in town, 
wonderful orthodontist to the stars forever. He said, what do you think about that? I said, I think it should be illegal. It's an amateur sport. Hmm, That's somebody's sick. son who's making that kick out there. Would you do that timeout if it was your boy? I don't think you would. Play the game. Respect the game. Mm-hmm. But to, to nickel and dime it so you can win for the old school, I don't like it. Yeah. And I think, who knows why, but maybe my Cape Town years, maybe the coaches that I had, Mr. Joe Quinn, uh, the, the Little League team where we won the World Series, he was a detective, NYPD. Mm-hmm. We, we just, there was a sense of fun there. When I think of my baseball life, when Mr. Quinn was reading the lineup and he, and he said, uh, uh, he was going through the whole lineup, and Rex, you'll bat seventh and you'll play right field. And one of the kids says, Mr. Quinn, his name isn't Rex. His name is Lex. <laughs> and Joe Quinn said, when he plays right field, he's Rex. When he plays left field, he's like, like, that's it was awesome. like and we all just cracked up. Yeah. It was like, okay, I blundered, you know. But he made light of the whole thing. He made yeah. the kid feel good. He made us all feel good. And that's the thing you want to do mm-hmm. with kids. Yeah. When I have my five strikes and you're out rule at the Southampton Baseball School and the kid strikes out, it's strike five, I'll say, get up left-handed. And he'll get up lefty and say, I've never done that before. I said, well, it's a camp. This isn't school. Just yeah. get up lefty. He'll and try. He'll, he's got five more chances, and he'll get a base hit. But you know the cool thing about that? When I do that with kids, where somebody will hit a line drive down the third baseline is six inches foul, and I call fair ball, and he gets a double. It's like on the Monday of camp. And the third baseman says, Coach Rob, that ball was foul. I said, you know, you learn at this camp, sometimes the umpires miss the call. <laughs> I said, besides which, Billy crushed that ball. I don't have the heart to call it foul. Yeah. First day, they say, man, I don't like that. But then they get to do the same thing. And it's five strikes and you're out and he misses the fifth ball. And I say, oh, foul tip. Now he knows this is an all-forgiving program. It's not that hard to figure out when you're doing a camp... And a kid hits a line drive. You teach line up your knuckles. He does yeah. everything right. And he hits a rocket shot back at my chest. And I catch it on the first pitch. Under normal circumstances, he doesn't get up again for another 20 minutes. I say, Freddie, is that the best you got? Get in there again. Do it again. Mm-hmm. So instantly, he's back in there. And he remembers that stuff. Yeah. Just little, different little mentality. Things. Little things. things. Yeah. It's yeah. just, you know, it, it it's... Being a coach is not that tough if you understand that you are kind of like an umpire. Mm-hmm. You are not a part of the show. The kids are the show. Yeah. My uh, First day at camp, I explained to each kid, when you get up to bat, you need to spell your name and tell me your name before you get into hit. I call spell check. And uh, I said, I want you to focus on, like, this is a game situation and somebody's announcing you. And with the New York kids, I went to spell check because I couldn't understand their, <laughs> their <laughs> accent. Yeah. Yeah, so totally. a kid would get up and he'd say, uh, uh, R-E-G-G-I-E, Reggie. I'll say, okay, Reggie, get in there. The reason I do the name thing and the spell check thing, I want to know their name from day one. Because on Monday morning at 9.15, after stretching, after you know, a little bit of drills, he hits a rocket to left field on an outside pitch. I'll say, great job, Reggie. And when you say that, it means way more than great job, son, or good hit, or something like that. When you say his name, there's a connection there. And coaches need to understand that. What kids want, they want to play and they want to connect. They want to connect with their teammates. They want to connect with their coaches. Yeah. So that's awesome. And, and back to the back to the little Mavs, I, I was uh, reading some information and it had yourself – and um, Todd Field, and then uh, a couple others. And Todd had recalled uh, about the little Mavs. He said, you know, he took a liking to him, but he said he thought that you were sweet for his sister. (laughs) Well, (laughs) yes. That was funny. Well, that's true. (laughs) Peggy and I went out for seven, eight years, and uh, we were an item. Uh, I I don't think Todd would ever say I gave him preferential treatment because... His sister was fantastic. But, uh, yeah, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> so Todd didn't, he didn't pull any punches. No, 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 yeah, no, that's no, funny. No. And then, um, so you, you you don't end up making uh, the Mavs, you know, your first year. 
But Bing, what I read is, is Bing Russell recalls you saying he's saying of you, you're a bit, you got a big league head with a minor league arm. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I'm, 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 <laughs> it was like the third year when it really came out because Bing measured us all for for championship rings. He found a woman at the Saturday market, mm-hmm. a real craftswoman, and. Uh, it was a, a steer with horns. It was dangerous. But he measured everybody's fingers. And classically, Portland Mavericks, the rings were for the middle finger. So when you had a, <laughs> That's so Maverick. Oh, yeah. when, you had a show, when you had a show, your ring, you know, it, you, know you, you can visualize. Yeah. But anyway, I held up my And I had the biggest hands on the team. And he said, how can a guy with those hands and that heart be so inept? I mean, you know, and he did it in a loving way. But... It, it was a good lesson that, you know, he had that 30-man roster. He wanted guys to go on a road trip, to be in a bar and say, yeah, I'm with the ball club kind of thing. Yeah. He wanted guys to have a life experience. Yeah. And, and again, it's like teaching at my baseball camp. It's beyond the game itself. Yeah. For a guy to, to meet people and say, yeah, I'm with the Portland Mavericks, it's... Mm-hmm. It was it was a big deal. Did so, you ever, did you ever work for Frank Peters? Because I know a lot of them. <laughs> Frank talked about either the Peters the, in Peters <laughs> in. Yeah. You know, you either you either were on the ball team or you're working for me. Well, you know, I ne- no, I never worked for Frank because I started the Low Maverick Baseball yeah. School, but a lot of guys did it. Yeah, you know, uh, Frank obviously has had issues over the years. Frank the Flake. But, you know, he was a minor league ball player, Baltimore Oriole organization. Yeah. yeah. Could never beat out Brooks Robinson. Before free agency, yeah. he was a third baseman. I think he drove him a little bit crazy then. Yeah. He was never going to replace Brooks Robinson. But Frank was a great, great athlete and way smarter than people gave him credit for. I mean, he ran his restaurants and he was wacky, you know, and he did some things that were above, below the law mm-hmm. that, that, you know, it happens. Yeah. But, uh, I have a lot of respect for the way he understood what the Portland Mavericks were. Frank was into branding before people knew That's what cool. a brand was. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I asked Bing if I could do a baseball day camp and call it the Little Maverick Baseball School, I didn't realize what a leap that was to to basically use his brand to sell my product. Yeah. yeah. And so Frank... Frank and Bing were, were like peas in the pod. They understood that this was, you know, they talk about it in Battered Bastards. Kurt talks about it, that that Bing was the music man, and we yeah. were just the players. We were the trombone section. He was talking about traveling River City kind of thing. And yeah. Bing just got it. He knew that... Todd Field always remembers the line that Bing said, the keys to being a successful minor league team, the key is a three-letter word, and it's not W-I-N. The key is F-U-N. Yeah. So the fans mm-hmm. have to have fun. The players have to have fun, and and everything will will take care of itself. And mm-hmm. and, and he was absolutely right. Yeah. So you 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 go on. You make the Mavs. I think in seventy six. So you play seventy six and seventy seven. Well, I made them all three years. But mm-hmm. I, you know, as my brother Harry says, I pitched briefly and ineffectively for three years. I mean, how does that happen? <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy, really. Yeah, you you call yourself a, the tenth man on a ten man pitching rotation, and you, you say I knew enough not to put myself in the game. Well, that's exactly right. Bing had we were going off to Seattle. Seattle and then Bellingham. Seattle was still in the league, oddly enough, in, at uh, Six Stadium. Uh, no, that's not true. In 77, the Mariners were in town, so we're going up to Bellingham. And uh, Bing had said, season's coming to a close. You haven't won a game here in three years. Put yourself uh, in the rotation. Give yourself a game. And we uh, we had a long road trip. Uh, let me backtrack on that. It was Boise and Walla Walla. And then we we're coming back from Walla Walla. And I knew we'd get into Portland at like 5, 6 a.m. I said, I'll pitch that game. The day after we arrive at 5 a.m., I'll pitch that game. Not knowing. So we get in at 5 a.m. I lived in an apartment building near the ballpark. I wake up at like 2 in the afternoon. Get a cup of coffee in the newspaper. It's Fred Meyer night. At the ballpark. 9,000 people there. Oh, man. Wow. So, or going to be there. So, I take the paper and I walk in over to the ballpark and Lanny Moss, GM, and I said, Lanny is being in, yeah, he's in his room, his office. And I said, Bing, 
I didn't know it was Fred Meyer night. You got John Dunn, who's all Northwest League. Joe mm-hmm. McLaughlin, all Northwest League. These guys have won nine, ten games. You got nine thousand people. You don't want me out there. And Kurt was in the next room. Kurt Russell. And he says, is that Rob, is he backing out? I said, no, you know, guys, I know you want me to win a game, and that's sweet, but this is not the time. They said, nonsense, do it. Just go do it. Throw five innings, we'll find a way. And that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Threw five innings. Portland State uh, star Gary Zaglow came in, in the, from the bullpen. Uh, we won the ball game. It's awesome. I got my one win, like 10 days left in the season. Mm-hmm. Kurt and Bing take us to the bullpen tavern beyond center field. And, and it was like I was Madison Baumgartner winning game seven yeah, in the World Series. So cool. I walked in there. I mean, we, we left at probably 4 a.m. Oh, I, I was so... I was so happy that my teammates were, were pleased that mm-hmm. that I'd done that one thing, you know, yeah, that I yeah. won one game in three seasons. That speaks to the culture mm-hmm. of that squad, too. That's pretty cool. You know, and even yeah. now, with all these alumni things that are happening with the Hillsborough Hops, who have been great about Maverick Mondays and other media stuff with the Battered Bastards, yeah. there's not one guy on the team who says, what are you doing in the film? There's not one guy that says, you really weren't very good. They understand that I... I because I was on the sidelines, uh, I was like an observer. So I I kind of held on to a lot of stuff. I remembered a lot of stuff. Yeah, I remember I remember a lot of great things about Reggie Thomas and 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 other people on that team who deserved a shout out because they were in their own way good guys. They had yeah. everybody on that team had their quirks. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and then the batter bastards really did a great job of the spectrum that was there. Mm-hmm. When I ran the tryouts the last year, we had like I don't know three hundred, and I ran this thing by the clock. Bing absolutely loved it; He'd never seen anything like it before. He would give me ten pitchers he wanted to see, so I had guys warming up at one twenty on the field at one thirty-five, so he could show up. Let, let's say he was talking to the Portland club for lunch or something. He said, "Rob, I want to see these guys between four and six. I'd plug the whole thing in. He would sit down and he knew who was there. And that was so classically Bing. He knew that everybody brought something to the party. Yeah. Yeah. And that some of it was on the field, like Reggie Thomas or Cliff Holland, you know, the, the, the great athletes on that team. Mm-hmm. Steve, Steve Collette, player manager. I mean, Collette was just, just fantastic. Yeah. But Bing understood also that there were worker bees out there, guys like me, who kind of thought differently. And I think Todd, help him. Todd recognized that too because I, I read that Todd remembers you with all your notebooks and, and the copious amounts of notes that you know you were taking all the time and there and you know out in the dugout and or uh, and just being aware of what was going on. Do you have any of those still? You know, I'm terrible with that. We talked about it earlier that I went to the first ever Met game in New York City in Manhattan, 1962, and I don't know where the program is or the tickets are. (laughs) I do remember one story when the San Diego Padres, Fontaine, I think, was the GM of the team, and he was traveling around, and Walla Walla was in town. The Padres were in town, you know, the single-A affiliate. Mm Mm-hmm. And I had given Bing a report like three weeks before the end of the season, evaluating the whole pitching staff and who we should use in a best of three game playoff kind of thing. Lefties, righties, and stuff like that. And he showed it to the Padres, director of scouting, director of operations, whatever, Mr. Fontaine, whatever his position was. And he, he, Bing told me that he said, you know more about your players than we know about ours. Bing was so proud of that. The, the cool. fact that that he he shared this thing, mm-hmm. handwritten, left-handed scratch. You know, you want to go with Steve this. He was a left-hander and then bring in. And he just got it. I remember when we clinched the pennant, John Dunn, local hero, who's been on your program. Yeah, yeah. He threw maybe seven innings, and I took him out. And I brought in Brad Kelly and then Bob Foster to end the game. Kind of like, again, we're talking 1977. It's like what they do now. Mm-hmm. Had an eighth inning guy and a ninth inning guy. And the next day, the Oregonians said, it's a pity local star John Dunn wasn't on the mound when the Mavericks clinched. And to, to talk about Bing Russell, I walked in the next day in the clubhouse and he said, you see today's paper? I said, yeah. He said, forget those guys. I know what you're doing. 
He said, don't worry about those guys. And the final game, John didn't have his A game. We came in with Brad Kelly and finished with Bob Foster. And if Bobby Edwards' rocket shot goes between third and short instead of a double play ball, we would have won the championship. But more importantly, the fact that the owner said, forget those guys. I know what you're doing. To have an owner have your back like that, it was just beyond belief. Mm -hmm. I mean, to be, at the time, 28 years old. I mean, summer of 77, I win one game. The owner has my back. The manager has my back. I invent Big League Chew. I get offered a job in advertising with the Jugs Pitching Machine Company. I mean, the summer of 77, it was like... Yeah. It's like everything shifted for me in mm-hmm. in a very in a very good way. And that, that that's a kind of a good segue to end kind of um the Mavericks before we get into to big league chew and kind of continue on with that. The PCL decides we want to bring baseball back to Portland and the Mavs are now like okay capitalizing capitalizing on the, on the Mavericks yeah. Cult, yeah yeah on this and trying to you know continue on with that what was that feeling like like for you at that moment when they're like we're coming in and we want us we want to start i was on the road working for jugs pitching machines i was in colorado when i heard about it and i called kurt i had his number and uh i said is it true i said yeah i'm I'm sorry to say it is uh it was gut-wrenching. At the end of the season, Bing had said to me, take some business classes at Portland State because let's face it, Rob, your future is not on the field. And I have to verify this story because Bing told it to me and every time I get around Kurt Russell, I always forget to ask him. But in the summer of 77, Bill Veck was not in good health. Mm-hmm. And Bing had put a group together with Elvis Presley and a number of Hollywood personalities mm-hmm. To buy the Chicago White Sox for $17 million and move them to Oregon. And Elvis had promised he would sing the anthem at half the home games just to get the fans. Mm-hmm. Huh. So I'm in Bellingham, Washington, August of 77, and I hear Terry Lee, one our shortstop, say to one of the guys, too bad about Elvis. The night before, Elvis Presley died. And he yeah. uh, and he was a potential investor. And, yeah. Oh, my God. To buy this game. So I, we huh. get back to Portland. I said, what do you think? To Bing. He said, deal's done. Yeah. He said, we can't do it if we don't have Elvis. Yeah, because you had to have the superstar. I remember we did an episode on Jackie Owens, the famous Olympian. Jackie he, Owens, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he had the, the Portland Rosebuds, the, the Negro League baseball team in Portland. And about, you know, he it talked about how he would run hurdles around the bases before the game. And he raced a horse. Raced a horse, like, <laughs> at Jesse times. Owens. And so it's just like you can see how the, the, the culture is going and how. People love this particular area, and I'm glad you brought up Elvis because it's like Jesse Owens had a team here, and then you have Bing Russell, and if you want to, and then you want to incorporate that with Elvis wanting to bring a professional team here. Now you have, you know, Russell Wilson, Sierra Wilson, you know, wanting to do that. So there's that. There is that mentality of wanting to be successful. I mean, there's something here. There's there's absolutely. Something here. Yeah. Uh, but when, I mean, when you think about the number, $17 million to buy the White Sox, and we're jumping around a little bit, but the f- after the first year of Big League Chew Bubble Gum, we sell $18 million worth of gum, and nobody saw that coming. Yeah. In 1981, the Cubs were sold for just under $22 million. Hmm. I remember calling my dad, and I said, the Wrigley family replaced the Cubs with Big League Chew. I thought... You know, we're going to skyrocket. You know, Big League Jew's done great. Yeah. You know, I, I did a great interview with Darren Rovell with ESPN Business. And at the end of the interview, he kind of threw me off. He said, Rob, you've done this a long time. Are you a wealthy guy? And I said, you know, my dad was NYPD and he had this saying that being better than being rich and famous was to be comfortable and anonymous. Mm-hmm. And I said, aside from Halloween, when everybody's at my house, because everybody's getting gunned. Kids are coming back two hours later with a new costume so they can get great and original. I said, aside from that, I'm pretty anonymous. Nobody's sticking menus in my face to sign stuff when I'm out with my family. So I, I tell you, I'm comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, and and I like that. I don't know why I started on that. Where were we before? Oh, we are just talking about, you know, the profession, you know, people that are famous and, and 
coming here and what they oh, yeah. see in Portland. So that's the like thing, that. you know. So I'm, you know, my my good friend Tony Starlight. I don't know if you've ever seen his show in Portland, but he's awesome. He calls himself a regional man of mystery, and I love that. It's mm-hmm. like self-effacing. It's like I'm pretty good, but I'm not world mm-hmm. renowned. You know, uh, I think I think I've gotten way more. Uh, attention than than certainly I deserve. Yeah, uh, but I'm not complaining. My, my you know my daughter's away in Boston at college, and I've got twins that are going to be going away to school. It's great that we can do those kinds of things. Yeah, but, you know we're not living large. You know we're not Elvis. Yeah. You so know, let's go ahead, Sam. let's uh, let's let's transition into uh, big league chew now. Um, I mean, you, as you described tonight, uh, your bullpen creation, the bullpen creation, but you describe yourself as the Willy Wonka of bubblegum. But let's, let's talk about, before we get too much of this, let's talk about you're sitting there out in the bullpen. Um, you know, I think that you, you noticed Todd Field, who've been, you know, with the little Mavs pulling out some a pouch a red man pouch I believe it was if I recall correctly and he's pulling out this this brown or dark dark stuff out is put in his thing and then he's like spitting it out and and you're kind of looking and you're like you apparently go up and you talk to him about like what he has there what 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 was going through your mind like literally at that moment you know that's a fascinating story Todd and I went out to dinner in December he was back here and I said look I, I read a thing about you talking about shredding licorice and putting it in a red man pouch. And you and I had a discussion about it. I said, Todd, I don't remember that conversation. He said, you're kidding. I said, I don't remember it. I'm sure it happened, but honestly, I don't remember it. My memory of Big League Chew is from Nellie Fox, Chewing Tobacco. My nickname was Nellie, yes. and that's where I was going to go with it. This picture that I got here, that you know, I saw that, and I'm like, oh my God, he, you know, had the big... Wadded chewing tobacco in his mouth. I mean, when I was 11, I, I, I hit with a Nellie Fox bat. Uh-huh. And, you know, people forget with the wood bats, Nellie Fox bat, you could hit with either end. The handle was like so thick. Huh. But I just wanted to be the Nellie thing. Mm-hmm. But I said to Todd, look, if I've never given you enough credit for this thing, I apologize. But I honestly don't remember that conversation. Huh. So we're still great friends. You know, we, we, we do a lot of stuff together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's fate, or maybe luck would have it. I have a better long-term relationship with Todd than I do with his sister, Peggy, who, I mean, we dated for a very long time. We're still on great terms. It just never happened. Good for her, good for me. Yeah. Uh, but but the thing with Todd was funny. He said, yeah, man, you got to remember this. I said, look, I'm almost 70. I forget a lot. <laughs> but that whole idea... To me, as I remember it, in the bullpen, there were guys chewing and spitting, and there were guys who wore white shoes, and they'd spit on each other. It was just mm-hmm. disgusting. And my memory is, I looked at Jim Bowden, and I said, you ever chew tobacco? He said, I tried it once. I said, me too. He said, maybe a minute. And I said, me too. I, it, was so, it was such a, a dramatic uh, moment for me. I remember it. I, I remember it too. My Danny Smith, Danny Smith, Uni- uh, Central Connecticut State. We were on tour in South Africa. I took a team over in '76 called the American Eagles. Danny was part of the team. I was throwing batting practice in Johannesburg. He said, "Hey, Nelly, try some of this." And I couldn't throw BP. I had it in my mouth maybe a minute, maybe less. I said, "No, this is not for me." I got dizzy. I just didn't. It never made sense to me. So fast forward, you know, the the next summer I'm in in, in Portland. And Jim Bouton and I are looking at guys spitting and chewing. And uh, I said to Jim, had you ever done that? And he said, yeah, Carolina League, tried it. Never made sense to me. He said, me neither. And so it was maybe an inning or two later when I said, I had this idea. Suppose you shred bubblegum and put it in a pouch. And and uh, it's a fun alternative. Nobody's going to die. Mm-hmm. you know. And Jim's response was, I love that idea. What would you call it? And, and I said... I don't know. Big League Chew? Off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. My brother Ed always says, that's like four guys at a pub in Liverpool. And one guy says, what are we going to call a band? And one of them says, how about the Beatles? That's a good name. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, just out of the air. Yeah. It came up with absolutely the perfect mm-hmm. name. And the funny thing was, 
I had gone to the patent, uh, Oliver Olson, he was a patent guy for the Jugs Pitching Machine Company, and he said, Rob, you you can't protect this, it's not going to work. And then, as luck would have it, I ran into Dan Chernoff, the Mm -hmm. dad of Scott Chernoff, who was in my baseball school. Dan and I were both at a MoMA Club Cornell alumni thing. We were talking to high school kids, the beauties of Cornell and Mm -hmm. what you could study. Mm -hmm. And Dan was a double Cornell guy, engineering and law school. And I was a philosophy guy. And I said, you can study anything there. Ezra Cornell was was a genius. And and I knew that Dan had to be the father of one of the kids in my camp. Dan was about 6'6". His son, Scott, was about 6'1", as an 11-year-old. Who ended wow. up also going to Cornell. And I said, you got to be Scott's dad. And one thing led to another, and he became my legal beagle. Yeah. And so Big League Chew was born. Hmm. He said, "We, we you, can't tra- you can't patent shredded gum any more than McDonald's can patent chopped meat. Mm-hmm. But you can own Big Mac. You can own Quarter Pounder. Right, the he branding. Said, Trade yeah. dress, you got a brand. And I didn't mm-hmm. know any of that stuff. And Dan took me to the promised land. Mm-hmm. What made you want to choose to experiment with brownish maple and root beer flavored gum? I thought being brown would be cool, a segue into that. Yeah. And when, when Jim finally got to a division of Wrigley, Amaral Confections, they said, love the idea, kids will never chew brown gum. It was the Fred Meyer Stadium, Fred Meyer, Merritt Hires Root Beer Extract, and a maple, you know, common brand. I didn't know what it was. But I was coaching at Portland State at the time, summer of, uh, the fall rather, spring rather, of mm-hmm. 78, 79. And uh, <laughs> Steve Candelo, still a great friend of mine and I, we both worked together for years at the pitching machine company with the Jugs Company. And he remembers, Rob, <laughs> you bringing this stuff out. And everybody was so polite, saying, yeah, Nelly, this is great. This is really, It was terrible. <laughs> it was it was just god-awful. And the only reason I made samples is because Jim Bowden said, I've gone to five or six companies. Nobody's buying. Nobody gets it. you got to build. you got to create a prototype. As luck would have it, January of 79, an article in People Magazine, mm-hmm. a company in Arlington, Texas, make your own bubble gum. I bought a case of this stuff, mm-hmm. and I made my own gum. Yeah, you had uh, you said Jim put like ten thousand dollars as like an initial investment. You ordered the do-it-yourself gum making kit. Right. Was would you get that out? Of, I gotta ask. This. It was you an get old Sears catalog. No, it was, people, it was People Magazine. Okay, and they, they were talking in a garage about, or something. They, no, gone. it was a real company. It's funny because I, I when I was doing a thing about five years ago with Matt Kemp's. With Matt Kemp and his organization, we were doing a not-for-profit thing. We had Matt Kemp on the pouch. And one of the women that worked with him, brilliant, she said she said two things. I've seen your stats, and why did the Mavericks invite you back? <laughs> that was number one. And number two, she said, you know, I have looked up that gum company. You might have been the only guy that ever bought anything from him because I've never heard from him then or since. Mm-hmm. So anyway, there were, this article on People, January of 79, talks about how people were making wild turkey bubblegum. They were mixing in alcohol oh, with a, oh. And I thought, well, I'm not going to go there. I just want, I want to make a shredded gum. Mm-hmm. And we baked it in Todd Field's kitchen. Actually, it's next February. It's the 40th anniversary. We're going back there. We're going to film it and recreate it. Because oh, Todd's oh, mom cool. and dad still live there. That that's would cool. be Southeast fun. Portland. That would be fun to like, oh, be there and record, that. record oh. that. that. You know, I, I have a piece of loose leaf paper, again, like my Met tickets and everything else in my life. I had everybody sign it. You know, in that photo that you saw of Todd Field and me and the little yeah. lab, hopefully, his sister Kelly is also in that photo. I mean, it's crazy. And mm-hmm. and so to go back there, it was February 6th, 1979. I found out seven, eight years later, it was Babe Ruth's birthday. Hmm. I was doing some work with Jugs Pitching Machines, mm-hmm. working with the Babe Ruth Baseball Association, looking at the history of the Babe. I said, wait a minute, February 6th, he was born on February 6th. And I went through him and I had the notes. That's when I that's when I created the first wow, the that's first cool. batch. And w- w- it was looked like a Baseball brownie. Baseball superstition right there. Yeah, yeah. it looked like a brownie. It was it, talk about superstitions. Red Sox won 108 games this year. That's how many stitchers are in a baseball. I thought they were destined to win the World wow. Series. That's right. Also 108 pouches in a case of Big League Chew. Wow. People ask me, did you do that on purpose? And I always say, yes. 
But maybe not. <laughs> but, maybe not. <laughs> but anyway, getting back to that whole thing. So we're in the kitchen. We make it. Uh, it's it's flat. It's it's thin. And I've got a round pizza knife. And I'm shredding the thing. And uh, we had a local ad agency build me some pretend yep. pouches. We had Jim Bouton on the front said, best I ever tried. A little cartoon bubble. Mm-hmm. Big League Chew shredded bubble gum. Yeah. So the old pictures of Big League Chew, I got to admit... The the hair looks like it is like you took it from like Jim Bowden because if you take a look look at Jim when he pitched for the Mavs it's like you know every time he pitched his hat would come off so he put his hat back on and it's like his hair is long enough so that was his like, trademark move even with the Yankees yeah you know he, he, he that was his move but mm-hmm. Bill Mayer out of Atlanta Georgia you look up thebillmayer.com he was a yep. Mad Magazine artist yep. and he just nailed it. That's cool. When I first saw the guys, I said, these look like the Portland Mavericks. And Jim said, yeah. yeah. You know, they're they're not Robert Redford. They're not handsome dudes. Yeah. And and that worked for us. Now, we were kind of a counterculture brand. And I remember, like, when I, every time I see the old picture of the older pouches of Big League Chew, I remember that. And I remember, like, it bringing me back to the day personally and grabbing Big League Chew, putting it in my mouth, and yeah. just, like... Chewing, it's like, you know, like chewing, 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 and then like these huge bubbles. And it's just, it brings back so many memories for me about middle school for me too. Yeah, Yeah. about it. And just like, just like early spring, um, New England, uh, going playing little league baseball with, you know, my friends and just having a good time. And we're just carrying these big league chew pouches in our, in our pockets. I just, it's great to, it's great to sit here with you. And it brings back these memories of my friends and my early childhood. You know, you're not alone. Everywhere I go, there's a Big League Chew story. I, I left Wrigley when Mars bought out Wrigley. Oh, okay. It was about eight years ago. And I got a great agent out of Chicago, Bob Anderson, through a Wrigley friend, Paul Chibe, who said, Nelly, you got to meet Anderson. He can help you take this to the next level. Because everybody agreed that... Big League Two and the Mars Wrigley was not a good fit. Okay. It was a niche brand. And so we ended up finding this magnificent company in Western New York, Ford Gum, just outside of Buffalo. And we pitched it to five or six companies, and Mm -hmm. some of the offers were better than Ford Gums. But I wanted to bring it back to the U.S., yeah. And Western New York, I had Cornell teammates from Tonawanda and Kenmore High School, and I knew the natural was filmed in Buffalo, right. and that, that uh, Warren Spahn grew up in Buffalo. There was right. just a baseball karma that really sure. worked for me, and they've killed it. I mean, later this month, like a week from now, is the eighth anniversary of that. Mm-hmm. And when, it, when we had the ribbon cutting there, we had 20 guys hired to make Big League Chew. I got to tell you, they treated me like an astronaut. And my dad's been gone for 10 years, so he wasn't there. But three weeks before Thanksgiving, 20 guys had jobs in western New York. It just made me feel so good, like I made the right move. And, and, you know, I don't know if it was the right company or not. As it turned out, it was the perfect company. Working with these guys, when I go into little Akron, New York, they treat me like I'm an astronaut. Mm-hmm. You know, it did. You know, and at the end of the Wrigley thing, and Wrigley was great to me in terms yeah. of negotiating, buying the equipment, moving it from Mexico to Buffalo, kind of thing. Uh, they were fantastic. Uh, but at the end of the thing, when I'd go to the Wrigley building, it wasn't like going to Buffalo. I'd go to Buffalo, it's bells and whistles. You think I'm John Glenn coming back from <laughs> the stars, you know? <laughs> but with, at the end of the Wrigley era, they'd say, "Can I see some ID?" You know, I'd walk yeah. in the Wrigley building. I was anonymous there. So it wasn't so much that I wanted the accolades. It's that I wanted to have the input. And we've got things going on now with Big League Chew. We're at Big League Chew Bubblegum Balls, which we was I was unable to do with Wrigley. I just wasn't that big a deal to them. And uh, we have a girl on the pouch now yeah. coming out in, in yeah. February. The evolution and, of the brand. It's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. She's terrific. You know, Amanda McFarlane is the artist. She's the daughter of a former big league player. She's done a great job. We had a lot of, over the years, we had a lot of cards and letters, so to speak, of, of softball coaches and players and saying, you know, what's with big league too? You know, we're, we're somebody too. And they're absolutely right. 
Hmm. And uh, we found the right artist. And when you see the design, it's just off the chart. Great. Yeah, it's yeah, really good. And it was, again, it was it was Darren Ravel who saw it at a, a trade show, and he he put a post out there, and just the media response has just been so cool. Like. Mm-hmm. You guys have your head on straight. Yeah. I'm really happy with that. Excellent. It's going to be great. And I, I wanted to talk about I was going to bring that up, too. It's sure. It's phenomenal that you're able to incorporate a woman for the first time ever on a big league shoe pouch. I want to commend you for that. I want to say that. I think that's pretty phenomenal. Long overdue, quite frankly. Yeah. And, and I'm glad that we've done it. I'm glad we found the perfect artist. The character, it just exudes what the other guys did, going back to the homage to the Bill Mayer era. And having said that, uh, the guys at Wrigley in-house who did a lot of the characters that are on there now, uh, just really good. Yeah. Good stuff. So um, I just kind of want to... Finalized talking about the big lead shoe from your end. Um, two things. You had once said that your parents asked you what it smells like, and you said it smells like fun. <laughs> you know, it, it, it was funny because with the yin and yang of the business, Jim Bounton was just tenacious. He was known as the bulldog as a Yankee. Mm-hmm. And as a negotiator, I mean, there'd be no big lead shoe if there had been no Jim Bounton. Mm-hmm. Jim made the deal happen. When Jim was asked, when you open that first patch, Jim, what did it smell like? Classic Bounty said, it smelled like money. <laughs> it just cracked me up. Yeah. And I know that's Jim kind of tongue-in-cheek kind of thing. Uh, but my experience was that this is fun. Yeah. This cool. is really fun. And you mentioned, you also mentioned in the same, in this is the same article, that your dad used to say it was lightning in a pouch. That's right. Yeah. My dad was a smart guy. Yeah. Really, you know, it's funny. My dad, you know, one of six kids, he never knew his father. My my grandfather died when my father was like 10 days old. Oh, wow. And my bre- my two brothers and I, we can't figure out how my dad became such a great father. I mean, the guy's just awesome. Mm-hmm. And between him and my mom, we just, you know, we just got it. You know, we understood what, understood what mattered. And, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> yeah, when he said lightning in a pouch... It's funny, when Dad retired from NYPD, he became part of the school board on, in Massapequa on mm. Long Island. He did it for nine years. It was a dollar a year job. And he treated it like like he, he was you know the manager of the New York Yankees. Education really mattered to him. Yeah. But the fact that his three boys went through public high school and, and all got college degrees, all got master's degrees, and in our own way, we've done meaningful things that's that's probably his crowning achievement that's cool yeah it is but I would be with my dad and we'd be in a shopping mall and, and a coach would come up and say Mr. Nelson I'll never forget what you did for me I, I just can't thank you enough and we'd be walking to our car and i say dad what'd you do for Coach Reef Snyder and my dad said Rob I don't remember and I'd say you know that's a good thing dad if you do enough good things yeah. for people yeah. that you can't recall what specifically you did uh, it was cool. It was interesting when my dad got on the school board. The, the the superintendent of schools was Harold Bell, who went to Linfield College. Wow. Small world. Small world. I mean, crazy, right? Rushman, and they yeah. did this national recruiting thing, and he had been a superintendent all over the place in California. But one of his stops along the way, he was the super of Eugene Springfield Schools. Huh. And what are the odds? First Oregon connection I made was like 1966 when Dr. Bell became the the, the, the superintendent yeah. of schools. And he was Harold Bell. My dad was Harold Nelson. And he had said to my dad, Harold, on the school board, he says, I've got a lot of guys with a lot of letters after their names, PhDs and whatever and whatnot, you know. And he said, they're very well-read people. But he said, nobody reads a room like a cop. And so Dr. Bell and my dad were tight. And my dad was like the conduit between the teachers and the administrators and the coaches. He was like, I used to call him the Henry Clay of, 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 of the school board, the great compromiser, that he would find a way to make things work. And eh, my parents were both beloved, beloved in that town. Yeah. Uh, and deservedly so. Yeah, my wife's grandfather, he did a lot in that community. He was a... Wow, World War II vet in the Navy, spent several years out in the South Pacific. He came back from you know his time overseas, and 
he spent a lot of time, um, you know, being involved in his local community as far as like their little HOA building that that family building that that yield uh, area, and then being on the school board. So it brings a lot of uh, the you know these memories back of you know, what I heard of you know my wife's grandfather. So I. Uh, you know, I think that's a big thing in that particular area, just involvement in the community. You know, I just try and do that. I mean, my kids, my, my twins are 14 pages away at, uh, at BU in Boston. And uh, to be a part of the town, whether it's last night at Halloween, giving out 200 bags of Big Lichu mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and throwing to parents who have a long face, say, hey, it's not just for kids anymore. And they, you know, they just, it's, it's just such a fun thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's not a cliche that it takes a village. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really not. And it's worldwide. I mean, when when I did clinics in London, when I pitched for the Enfield Spartans, I mean, I had an owner of the team there, Malcolm Needs. He saw the big picture. Yeah. He got involved in British baseball. He's at a White Sox game hmm. selling golf equipment. He's at the old Comiskey. And a family guy buys, I don't know, two hot dogs, three beers, and they're passing money and beers and hot dogs. And he said, what well, you know, when I when I go to watch Premier League soccer, it's not like this. It, it's not the same. You know, back from his, his childhood, he said this is a family experience. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm in a Tottenham game. You know, Spurs fans, it wasn't the same. Not that he was putting the knock on it. He's just he said I never saw so many families at a ballpark, mm-hmm. and he knew nothing about baseball. He ended up becoming the commissioner of the British National League, and we were like peas in a pot. But but Malcolm was the same kind of guy. The community mattered, mm-hmm. and uh, I've been lucky that way. Everywhere that I've gone, Sydney, Cape Town, London, in the baseball world, it was more than just the game itself. It was the whole town. Yeah. So speaking of uh, now that we talked about Big League Chew and the invention, you uh, apparently invented a, a game, marble game called Boku. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's funny with my game. I've I've tweaked it. It's got a new name. I can't announce it because it's it's pending. The year I think it was 1994 that my game won a Mensa prize. Wow! American Mensa Society yeah. gave out five prizes to best new games. Mine was one of them. That that means something. That's one of the yeah. other games was Apples to Apples. Oh man! So Love Apples Apples to Apples has sold 15 million games. You know, I, I I moved my business from Mexico to Buffalo. I got married. I got three kids. I was working advertising with a pitching machine company. I had stuff to do. I kind of got distracted, right? So my brother Red, <laughs> he would talk about people say, "Whatever happened to Rob's game?" Because we would play it at the Lobster Inn when I was a busboy there. You know, after Big League Show, I'd go back for the summers, part of the summers, and just work for Skip Tollefson, mm-hmm. the fellow who ran the restaurant, and my brothers. And it was like a big clubhouse. And we'd always play my game at the end of the night. I'd say, whatever happened to Rob's game? He said, you know, he won this Mensa Prize the same year that Apples to Apples won. Everybody knows Apples to Apples. Oh, yeah. And they big said, and, and, and Apples has sold 15 million games. They said, what about Rob? He said, well, he sold 16. 16 million? He said, no, 16. 16 games. So I'm still working on it. It's a work in progress. I'm going to the Toy Fair in February in New York City, giving it one last hurrah, because I think I have solved how to market the thing. Uh But, you know, I was at a game uh, night uh, at Fairview Elementary School. Is that the town out by Gresham? Yeah. Yeah. Troutdale area. Right. Yeah. Great families, great kids, and I've... I've changed the design. It's no longer marbles. It's kind of hard to describe here. But I was playing. It was just so awesome. Uh, Jonathan Steinfeld is the uh, principal there. He's a, he's a uh, tennis buddy of mine. He said, Nelly, you got to come out and you know, do your game. We had so much fun. And I was so pumped about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I contacted that night a couple of game companies and they said I got a game you got to talk to me and I've got some responses so that's awesome. it's not over you know the Rob's Rob's game I, th- I think I still own Rob's game.com although the game's not going to be called Rob's game but I just thought <laughs> yeah it's just for lack of, you know I didn't call it Rob's gum you know but that's always been my goal for the longest time has been that 
gum guy becomes game guy. That's cool. Yeah, again, my dad, going back to Harold Nelson, uh, my brother Ed calls it Dad 101, these basic things about him. When he first saw my game, and he's not much of a game player, but he said, Robert, if you do this right, your game is going to be bigger than your gum. And that's my goal. Wow. My goal with the game is to do what Harper Lee did with To Kill a Mockingbird, which is to yeah. sell 50 million game books, me, games, you know, over a long time. And I don't care if I make a nickel on it. I just want to see families people sitting People are around. buying it over decades. I yeah. want to see people sitting around like at the it's Lobster Inn. Sustainability. Say, Man, I didn't see yeah. that move. My game has two rules. I'll give you guys a game each when I get the prototypes complete. Excellent. But you're going to look at this thing, and one of my friends, Peter Richard, bartender at the Lobster Inn, he said, Nelly, this game looks like it's a thousand years old. It looks like it existed in ancient times, which was high praise. Yep. High praise. So is the gum guy going to become the game guy? Stay tuned. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, you know, we have a connection with Guardian Games in downtown Portland. Yeah. So those guys are awesome. They're one of our sponsors. Uh, yeah. our spo- really, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, that's they're cool. one of our sponsors. So you know, we we'd be happy to help you make that connection and make maybe have a Rob Nelson Bubblegum game night sometime. Yeah. That would you be know, fun. My brother Ed teaching just to wrap up teaching at special education at Walt Whitman High School uh, on Long Island in Huntington. He, he would say, uh, Rob, I'm, I'm like a walking infomercial. Because he would have a case of Big League Chew, and he'd have my board games, and he'd have a tournament. And the kids who would win the tournament would win the gum. Nice. So he said, I'm feeding on it, you know, so you owe me, brother. You know, so. And Ed's right. You know, I do owe my brother. Yeah. So let me, let me finish up Big League Chew, finish up gaming stuff. And let's go into to, to Major League Baseball and its high potential of coming to Portland. And I just want to throw, use the Big League Chew. Wouldn't it be cool to be sitting there in Portland, Oregon, seeing Big League Chew like in the dugout, and these these younger guys chewing on Big League Chew, and you just like sitting back, having a beer or something, and just relaxing at the ballpark with this? I'd be over the moon with it. We've only got one MLB team where the official gum in the dugout, and it's the Baltimore Orioles. Yep. Uh, just through Cal and Bill and just other people I know in the Orioles. So when you watch an, an O's game, you'll see the buckets of okay. Big League Chew. But, but to me, yeah, it would be it, it would be the crowning it'd achievement. Have be, it'd have to be Portland in yeah. terms of that. Yeah. I mean, cool. to be the official bubblegum of, of of the Portland team. Now, in terms of the Portland team, I think they should be called the Publicans. We have a lot of pubs around town. Ooh, and I think, that. Uh, how about that headline? Pubs win. Right? <laughs> oh, yes. All right. That, yeah. Would that be perfect? And we are a pub town. You're right. Don't you Absolutely. think? Pubs win. Portland pubs. So, you know, and I'm giving that away for a dollar. Free, free chalupa at a food cart. Yeah. yeah. Don't you think? But pubs win. I mean, it, it just says Portland. Yeah. So. yeah. so if you could, and I, I've, I've asked everybody this. Uh, I asked Frank. I've asked John and Jack Don, who were recently on. And uh, we, I believe we asked Jerry Gatto also. If you could start a team with any player currently playing, who who would it be? Oh, well, Bryce Harper, uh, Chris Bryant, uh, Mike Trout. Yeah, we threw out Betts. We've thrown out Bradley. We Jose thrown Altuve. Out Altuve. We've thrown out Judd. Yeah, Carlos Stanton. Yeah. yeah, so Altuve. Altuve is a be. good pick. Yeah. yeah, he's a good pick. I don't know if you've read any of Rob Nyer's book. He's a Portland guy. He came out with Powerball about three weeks ago. No, I it's haven't. a great book. He's another guy you need on this on the on your show. We'd lo- you know N E Y E R Rob Nyer. He's the commissioner of the West Coast League, the Summer College League. Mm-hmm. I have his book on Audible. In fact, when I was driving out here, he was reading to me. But Nair is a star. I think of Jack threw that name out too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we'll have to. Eat Nair is he's, he lives over in St. John's. He is he was the first hire that Bill James made mm-hmm. when he started the whole sabermetrics thing. Hmm. And and, and I'm trying to think maybe 2004. Nair and James came out with a formula for predicting who would win the Cy Young Awards. And for like 13 years out of 16, they nailed it. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah, I had coffee with him yesterday, actually. He's, he's an awesome guy. 
and frankly, way more articulate than I am, than the three of us, quite honestly. Uh, he's really, really good. We'll, yeah. we'll get, it, get in touch. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, w- when the team does come to Portland, um, Dave and I would love to go to a game and, and talk ball with you and, oh, and just sit I'm in. there. Pubs win. Yeah, pubs, pubs win. win. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so really, this has been a great experience I really love your story thank you um, I know I was texting you you know today about it was I was like Mr. Nelson I really love your story and I think you've you fit the, the kind of the mantra of everybody that we've had on um, over lately and that's just your commitment to the community and what you do. So thank you for, for what you're doing for, you know, youth development as a whole and what you continue to do for youth development. I think that that is phenomenal. And thank you for what you're doing. I mean, I, as you've seen, I have two young children, so sure there, you know, there are future. And as you said, it takes a community to raise our kids, but thank you for your, 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 what you do for my pleasure. This is really fun. Baseball and beyond in life perspective. I I appreciate that. So, uh, I think that'll do it, uh, for us for this finish up this two part episode with Mr. Rob Nelson. Uh, thank you for coming on, sir. Any final departing words? No, my pleasure. The game matters. The families matter. The community matters. All right. Well, Dave, thanks for uh, being on this with me yet again. Ben, it's been a pleasure. It's been great. And uh, I I think we'll call it a show. Let's do that. All right, buddy. You have a great day. You too. All right. Take care. Thank you, Mr. Nelson, for coming on. Thank you, Mr. Nelson. All right. Peace out.